Welcome to AudioPie's English Literature and Language Show. You can dip into huge chunks of over 19 series for free and learn on the go. Happy listening, everyone. It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. Welcome to our podcast series on Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice. This series will take you through the novel, a few chapters at a time, and help you identify the key ideas you'll need to ace your English literature exam. Later podcasts zoom in on particular characters, and we'll finish by applying what you've learned directly to the exam and tackling the mystery of what examiners want. But before we embark on the novel itself, There are a few things worth exploring, like what's so great about Jane Austen? Why, oh, why do you have to read a book over 200 years old about a world that is completely different to the one you live in? Well, these are big questions. Let's start with why people rate Jane Austen. The unique thing about her is her writing style. Most widely read people could identify a bit of her writing easily because that style is very individual. It is funny and light and very carefully crafted. Some people find it too controlled and too short on powerful expressions of emotion or big scale events. Austen herself knew this. When the book was published, she wrote to her sister saying, The work is rather too light and bright and sparkling. It needs shade. Of course, we all know she's not always entirely serious. The main characteristic of her writing and the foundation of all this sparkliness is her famous irony. So what is irony? Well, it's something to do with the difference between what is said or intended and reality. There are different aspects of irony. Firstly, we have verbal irony, of which Austen is queen. This is where the narrator or a character says something they don't mean for comic effect. It's a bit like sarcasm, but without the bitterness. Let's imagine you went all out to find a really amazing birthday present for your friend, and they more or less ignored it. You might say, don't go overboard on the excitement. Or your long-suffering teacher might say to you, I see you're raring to go this beautiful Monday morning when they mean that you look as if you've been dragged to school kicking and screaming and haven't slept for weeks. That's ironic. Let's apply this to Pride and Prejudice. Maybe that famous opening we used at the beginning of the podcast is as good a place to start as any. It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. Is this what Austin really thinks? It's clearly not true. Rich young men may want many things, and a wife is probably not top of the list. However, rich young men are very much run after. We still talk about eligible bachelors even these days. So in fact, this is poking fun at the young women and their families who want to provide him with a wife, whether he wants one or not. The second sentence nails the irony. However little known the feelings or views of such a man may be on his first entering a neighbourhood, this truth is so well fixed in the minds of the surrounding families that he is considered the rightful property of some one or other of their daughters. 
While the first sentence is called truth, the fact that the man's feelings are dismissed and that materialistic word property shows us that she doesn't believe it. She's teasing. You can find examples of this ironic style almost anywhere you open the pages. As well as the narrator, Elizabeth and Mr. Bennet are great at ironic observation, making the reader like them a lot despite their failings. We appreciate all the laughs. There's another aspect of irony going on too, called situational irony. This is where a character confidently expects something to happen, but the opposite happens. For example, when Darcy confidently announces that the Bennets' trade relations must very materially lessen their chance of marrying men of any consideration in the world, this is ironic, because he is totally unaware that he's going to end up marrying Elizabeth himself. Look out for twists like this as we go through the plot. Another aspect of Austen's style is the amount of dialogue, much more than in other 19th century novels. There aren't many descriptive passages of setting and so on. Dialogue is the thing. This brings us to a technique that Austen sometimes gets credit for introducing to literature, a device called free indirect speech, or free indirect discourse. You don't need to worry about this till A-level, but then again it will impress if you can make sense of it. It means that instead of writing the characters' actual words, Austen reports what they say, all mixed up with the narrator's voice. Look at this bit from Darcy's proposal. He spoke well, but there were feelings besides those of the heart to be detailed. And he was not more eloquent on the subject of tenderness than of pride. His sense of her inferiority, of its being a degradation, of the family obstacles which had always opposed to inclination, were dwelt on with a warmth which seemed due to the consequence he was wounding, but was very unlikely to recommend his suit. The words inferiority, degradation and family obstacles are Darcy's, but with the narrator's comments intermixed to underline just how offensive he's actually being. So what about genre? What type of novel is it? The novel form really took off in the 18th century and was hugely popular in the early 1800s. Writers were taking the form in various directions, and the gothic novel with its thrilling adventures, hapless heroine and wicked villain was especially popular. Austen's novels are nothing like this. They focus on the everyday lives of ordinary middle-class women in England at the turn of the 19th century. They are sometimes called novels of manners, because social interaction and etiquette are so important in the stories. Austen knew that her books had quite a narrow focus. She wrote to her nephew, who was also a writer, What should I do with your strong, manly, spirited sketches, full of variety and glow? How could I possibly join them onto the little bit, two inches wide, of ivory on which I work with so fine a brush, as produces little effect after much labour? She might be joking again, but the image of fine, detailed painting seems to fit. You could say that her novels are realistic, because the events are every day and the main characters recognisable, flawed and complicated. However, she does blend in fairy tale elements, like the happy ever after idea, and there's more than a hint of the Cinderella story about pride and prejudice. 
This is a novel that is meant to make us think seriously, despite Austen's comment that it lacked shade. It questions women's position in the world, the restrictions on them, the unfairness of the inheritance laws. Elizabeth takes control of her future at key moments and has her own opinions throughout. She is not the lovely but helpless heroine of the popular Gothic novels. She has a brain and energy and she uses them. What about structure? Well, this is a chronological narrative, spanning just over a year in the lives of the characters. Past events are mentioned in letters and conversations, and future ones at the end, but the drive of the plot is straightforwardly chronological. It was published in three volumes, and the structure of the story reflects this, rather like a three-act play. In volume one, Jane and Bingley meet, are attracted and separated, while Elizabeth has to deal with her two false suitors in the shape of Collins and Wickham. In Volume 2, Elizabeth and Darcy's relationship reaches rock bottom in that awful proposal, and Elizabeth is forced to begin her journey of self-discovery. Finally, Volume 3 shows us their developing reconciliation. This is interrupted by Lydia's elopement, giving Darcy the chance to show how thoroughly he has changed his attitudes. The path is now clear for resolution. Well, clear-ish. We have a final hurdle in the shape of Lady Catherine, and then the wedding bells ring at last. So that was our quick tour of style, genre and structure. It's worth getting your head around at least the bare bones of this, because it'll help you understand and analyse what's going on in the extract you face in the exam. If any of this is relevant to that extract, bring it into your answer. The examiner will be no end impressed. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Don't forget to search for and listen to the next episode in the series to build your topic knowledge. Hit the Acast Plus link in the show description to become a premium supporter and unlock access to every episode in every series for as long as you need. We also make GCSE and A-level content for history, RE, sociology and psychology. Happy listening, everyone.